Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled, What God Has Made Clean. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I know that Romans 3.11 categorically states that no one seeks God. I take that rather clear statement to mean that left on our own, without the grace of God that draws us to God and His Son, Jesus, we would never even tend towards seeking God. We'd either ignore God entirely, or we'd openly rebel against His ways, or we would twist the knowledge of God and make our own idols acceptable gods that we can safely worship. No one seeks God, says Paul. No one. It is an insightful description of the state of the human heart, a heart that has been ruined in the fall of Adam. Isaiah echoes those same thoughts in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where he says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All we, says Isaiah, everyone, he says, has turned his own way. But if that's true, and it is, but how then can it be that perhaps in our own lives, You know, you remember your heart awakened in which you felt yourself strangely drawn to the gospel of Jesus. You know, since we're studying the book of Acts, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. And that chapter records the first Christian sermon in history, and it was an evangelistic sermon. If you remember that part of the sermon near the end, in what we might call today the altar call, that Peter makes an appeal. And I'm reading Acts 2.39, where Peter says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone, he says, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There is a call of God that stirs the heart. The heart might have been dead to God, well, sure enough, so that left to its own devices, Romans 3.11 and Isaiah 53 verse 6 would have been true of all of us until the day we died. We would have been unresponsive to God as a dead man is unresponsive to the world. But then miraculously comes the call of God, God calling men and women to himself. Don't you see, it was not we, but God who took the initiative by calling us. Peter would describe this in a wonderful way in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, where he would say that we were called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, when we come to Acts chapter 10, suddenly something happens that's never happened before. Up until now, almost all the people who made up the church of Jesus were Jews. Yeah, the gospel had gone to the Samaritans, but in truth, they were half Jews. You know, for the first five, six, or seven years, the Christian faith was entirely Jewish. And had God not intervened and called the Gentiles unto himself, it would have remained that way. But as we've seen, first came the marvelous conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and that would later ramp the Gentile mission into high gear. But that time was not yet. And since Peter was taking leadership in the church, God so ordained it that it would be Peter and not Paul that would open the door to the Gentile mission. Now, that's the drama at the highest level. It's a breathtaking story of something which at that time utterly stunned the Jewish church of Jesus. So let's start to read. And here I'm reading Acts 10, 1 to 4. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously to God. 
About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. We're going to have to fill in a great many of the details before you know we're ready to understand the passage. So let's start out by trying to understand the man himself, this man Cornelius. We know he's an Italian soldier in the Roman army. He's stationed in Caesarea. So let's start with Caesarea. Caesarea was a seaport city in Israel. It was located on the Mediterranean Sea. And in 30 BC, Caesar Augustus had given the city, it was then called Strato's Tower. Well, he'd given it to Herod the Great. But Herod had been desperate to ingratiate himself with Augustus. And so he named the city after Augustus simply Caesarea. And he built it into a spectacular city. It was replete with a theater and an amphitheater. It had a massive racetrack for chariot races. It had an amazing aqueduct that brought fresh water into this very desert-like city. And he built a massive seaport. It was spectacular. I mean, that could go on and on. But Caesarea became the major port in Israel where shipping was done. It became the headquarters of Roman troops stationed in Israel and it would have numbered about 3,000 Roman soldiers. Among them was one regiment called the Italian Regiment, probably made up of some 500 men. Caesarea was a city that was quite cosmopolitan. People were living there from many different countries, but of course it also had a sizable Jewish population, which is what we would expect. So that's the city. That's where we find this Roman soldier, Cornelius, stationed among others in the Italian Regiment, in the Roman army. Okay, what else do we know about this man? Well, we know that he is a centurion. And centurions, as many have pointed out, were the backbone of the Roman army. They commanded a centuria, or 100 men. Centurions enforced discipline, both in battle and at other times. If a soldier stepped out of line or didn't respond well to orders, it was a centurion who stepped in and had the soldier flogged. See, they made sure that all troops were at all times both ready to respond to orders, but also ready to meet the enemy on the field of battle. Centurions made the Roman army tick, and they operated with great efficiency. All centurions were literate because most orders came to them in written form. All of them were promoted from the ranks of common soldiers. They would have had to have served at least 10 years and were men of distinction, men of courage, men of discipline, men who had the respect of other soldiers. And that's who Cornelius was. Because everyone counted on centurions, they received a pay scale that was nothing short of excellent. And from my reading of this text, Cornelius must have had a very well-to-do home where he lived. Now, notice also that our text says he feared God. Now, that's a technical term for a Gentile who would have come to love the God of Israel. No, he wasn't a convert to Judaism, but he would have worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have to assume that he attempted to live in harmony with the Ten Commandments. We also know that he observed Jewish times of prayer as well as, well, he gave alms to the poor, something that all faithful Jews were expected and required to do. And that leads to a very important question. How did that come to be? Our text doesn't tell us, but we do know that the book of Acts is filled with accounts of God-fearers just like Cornelius. For example, Acts 16, 14, the story of the conversion of Lydia. 
Well, it calls her a worshiper of God, but she's a Gentile who's not a convert. Same is true when Paul was in Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 4, we read of a group of devout Greeks that way. And then again, Acts 18, verse 7, Paul's in Corinth, and there we meet a man named Titius Justice. He's called a worshiper of God. See, all these are Gentile God-fearers. They're not converts to Judaism, but these people worship the God of Israel. At any rate, we're getting a picture of a man, Cornelius, well, who for some time now had been drawn to love and to worship and to submit to the God of Israel and the God who is found in Scripture. Remember, I spoke about the calling of God. There had to be now for some time a stirring in this man's heart to love the God of Israel. So the action picks up while Cornelius, the Italian military commander, is in the hour of prayer about three o'clock in the afternoon. That is the traditional time when Jews are in prayer. He's following the set times of devotion and praying when suddenly he has a vision and an angel appears before him. Now, please understand that Cornelius is a military man who understands what a chain of command looks like. So his first reaction is that he's terrified. The God of Israel has just sent one of his chief warrior commanders to him. What does that mean? And so the first words out of his mouth are the words, what is it, Lord? So please don't understand that Cornelius is in some way ascribing divine attributes to the angel. Rather, Lord means he's addressing a superior commander. He immediately knows that this angel outranks him because he comes from the presence of God. There is a sense in which a military man can understand what so many others don't. He knows commands and he knows obedience. At any rate, the angel says, Cornelius, your prayers have been noticed, along with your faithful, obedient giving to the poor. The words that are used are that they have ascended as a memorial before God. It comes from the language of the sacrificial ritual, a memorial offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In the same way, God is pleased with that man's prayers. The angel has come to let this military man know God has been pleased with your actions. We want to thank you for your faithful prayers and generous gifts that help ensure that solid Bible teaching is available around the world. Because of your generosity, all of our international Bible teaching efforts and partnerships happen, including the distribution of Dr. John's new book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, being made available in 11 key languages distributed across India. It's such a privilege to work in partnership with you and ministry friends like Back to the Bible India and Back to the Bible Sri Lanka. As we work together, Bible resources are being made available around the world. And a special thank you for your gifts, the gifts you sent during our international focus in March. And may I encourage you to continue to support these international partnerships throughout the year, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. To learn more or to offer a gift in support of international ministries, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. You know, for anyone who worships God, to hear the words that God is pleased is, I think, the most wonderful thing that we can hear. God is pleased with your prayers. God's pleased with your faltering steps of obedience to Him. 
But of course, this is only the first step in the adventure that's about to unfold. The angel sent from God now has more to say, so let's keep reading Acts 10, 5 to 8. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon at Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from those who attended him, and having related everything to him, he sent him to Joppa. There are two parts to this account, and we shouldn't pass over it too quickly. The first is that up until then, Cornelius is not told why he should ask for a man named Peter to come, nor who the man is. But again, remember, he's a military commander. He understands orders. When an order is given, you don't ask for full explanation, nor do you enter into negotiations. Orders are for obeying. Sometimes I think Christian people should spend some time with military people to get the concept. You know, the second important feature of this story is that Simon, who is also called Peter, is to be brought to Cornelius' home, not the other way around. Cornelius is not ordered to travel the 50 kilometers to find Peter. And I think that's important for two reasons. The first is that this mirrors the commands of the missionary God. See, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world. He didn't say, you know, make your ministry so attractive that the world beats a path to your door. I'm trying to highlight the difference between what we find in the First Testament and what we find in Jesus. When Solomon built the temple, he prayed for the Gentiles who would hear about the fame of the God of Israel, and for that reason, they'd be intrigued, and they'd come to the temple, and they'd worship God there. Well, fine and well, but Jesus commanded his followers to go. It's very important for Peter to hear that. He, the man who was giving primary leadership to the church in his day, would be the first man who heard the command, go and enter the home of an unclean Gentile. And that, of course, is where the the passage becomes very interesting. You know, Cornelius summons two of his personal servants, along with one of his most loyal soldiers, and he sends them south along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea to the coastal town of Joppa. Uh, They are to look for the home of a man who is a tanner. It would be fairly easy to locate the man's home, and we've been situated just outside of the confines of the city. And then while they're on their way, something wonderful happens. Acts 10 verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So you have to imagine that Cornelius' party is still some hours away as they're traveling on foot. The times designated as times of prayer in Israel were morning and evening, but noon was also often observed. This is the second time of prayer. It's noon. While the meal is being prepared in the home, Peter is on the housetop. It's happening, I think, perhaps in the summer, and it would have been cool on the housetop as the cool winds from the Mediterranean Sea would have blown over it and made it quite acceptable. So we read verse 10. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they're preparing it, he fell into a trance. You might wonder if Peter's the kind of guy who can, you know, hardly survive between mealtimes. But, you know, some have suggested that it may have been that Peter was fasting. And it's now noon and it's time to break his fast. Well, at any rate, he's hungry and his hunger keeps his senses keen. He's going to use the time wisely. He's going to continue in prayer. And when Luke says he fell into a trance, we might wonder exactly what kind of a mental state is he now in? The Greek word translated as trance is the word 
ecstasis, you know, we get our English word ecstasy from that. The same word gets used of Paul in Acts 22. He's recounting his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. And you might remember that Paul was then preaching in the Greek-speaking Jewish community, the same community that had arranged for the stoning of Stephen. And you remember that they were plotting to kill Paul. And Paul now says of his own experience, and I'm reading Acts 22, verses 17 and 18, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they won't accept your testimony about me. And so it would seem that there are times when God is preparing a man to hear his voice that the person in question will fall into some form of an ecstatic state. You know, some have suggested that a trance, as is being described in Acts, is a state of transition from the ordinary state of affairs into a different state where the physical world no longer makes an impact, but a spiritual dimension is opened up here. See, when I think about that, I'm reminded of Paul's description of that, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he says, I was taken up into the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. And as he thinks about that experience, he says he doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body, whether he was physically taken up into heaven or in some kind of a trance-like state. He doesn't know. And the point I'm trying to make is not that a trance is a mind-altering experience. Rather, it's the opening of a sudden awareness of the spiritual realm. And so we have to imagine it's before the meal. Perhaps Peter has been fasting, and he's been in a time of intense prayer, and suddenly the spiritual world opens up to him. Now we come to Acts 10, 11 to 16. And saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And so in this heightened spiritual state, he sees heaven open. I think this means that he sees something coming directly from the dwelling place of God, and we would think it would be a welcome sight, but but Peter's shocked. He sees a sheep descending with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds, and what's of interest to us is that the animals on the sheet are made up of both clean and unclean animals. They're all together. You know, if one reads Leviticus chapter 11, you get a very detailed description of clean and unclean animals. The Israelites were permitted to eat clean animals, but not unclean ones. See, in the point of Leviticus 11 and other passages in Leviticus is that Israel was supposed to learn to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, between that which was holy and that which was profane. God was developing a culture in Israel in which the clean-unclean distinction would be deeply embedded into what people ate, what they wore, who they worshipped, what kind of people they interacted with. God was during this time creating a distinction and a separation for his people so that they might be the holy people of God. See, I think for that reason, it's safe to say that Peter 
had never been in the home of a Gentile before. I say it's safe to say that by far the majority of the people that made up the Church of Jesus at that time in history had never been in a Gentile home either. Gentiles ate things that were unclean. Their, Their homes were stained with the profane. And in order to be separate and cleansed as the people of God, that order was maintained. See, I think it's fair to say that if a faithful Jew had actually entered into a Gentile home, their conscience would have crushed them. It was forbidden by God. It wasn't done. Again, we're reminded why there were God-fearers among the Gentiles, but so few converts. At any rate, Peter is shocked now to see a sheet coming down containing both clean and unclean animals. And then the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And of course, Peter's revulsed. I've never done such a thing. And then the voice speaks again. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. Don't reject what God has made acceptable. And the vision happens three times. It's repeated three times because God has said, This is settled in heaven. But Peter's also aware that God is speaking to him. It may be true that no one seeks God by nature, but wasn't God gracious to call the people of Israel as his own? Would it then be so strange that God would now open a door and call the unclean Gentiles to be his own as well? What if the Gentiles are offered access to God as Israel was? See, when God calls, Is he not able to cleanse those whom he has called? Is he not able to make holy both Jew and Gentile? Don't ever question God on this matter. He's calling men and women from the most unlikely of places. Thanks, John. Let me ask you this. How would you challenge the church in Canada today, given we're in an increasingly multicultural country? I think that we should see this as an opportunity, uh, not a threat. Um, God who oversees uh, the development of nations and who causes people uh, to move from one place to another has in our day brought the vents that make Canada uniquely the country that it is today. Same can be said of the United States, other countries as well. Uh, We should see this as God's opportunity. Uh, Many of the people who are coming are open to the gospel. We need to develop a clear strategy of sharing the good news of Jesus uh, with individuals who are new to this land. And um, we're going to find there are going to be so many fruit that come from that. So I think that's what we need to do. Welcome it with joy. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you. It's our Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience some of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many other biblical figures walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's royal palace. Worship at the Garden Tomb and go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Enjoy daily Bible teaching from Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged as we share time with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and special musical guests. Don't miss this wonderful opportunity to visit the Holy Land You'll be inspired and refreshed 
in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.